In this episode, I talk with Samantha, a fourth-year medical student applying into family medicine. We talk about her initial interest in neurosurgery and her research on the deaths of patients with brain tumors. During medical school, she took a gap year to pursue research and a certificate in epidemiology, and this time allowed her to reflect on her experiences throughout medical school and decide to choose a career in family medicine. She has had many incredible experiences in medical school, including serving as editor-in-chief for the Michigan Journal of Medicine, being involved in ethics, and working towards becoming a certified clinical ethicist. We talk about the challenges of medical school, dealing with competition and comparing yourself to others, and how to handle failure, rejection, and ultimately persevering in the face of difficulties. She offers the sage advice of approaching failure as an experience as opposed to one's identity. Sammy, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome to have you on. Thanks, Ali. Happy to be here. All right. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I grew up in the state of Michigan, went here for undergrad at the University of Michigan on the Ann Arbor campus, and then stayed here at the University of Michigan Medical School for my four years of med school. I also did my undergrad here, so it's it's like a, a long time to be here, but it's it's a great, uh, great school to be at for sure. Yes, definitely an amazing education. And then yeah. I think we also interviewed at one point in uh, one of the multi uh, interviews yeah. that we had to do for medical school together. So it was I great remember that. Time. Yeah, it was like we were back to back in the interview, like telling each other how to do the Legos or whatever <laughs> yes. it was. So tell me about your journey to medicine. How did you decide you wanted to become a doctor? I had a very uh, convoluted path. I When I was in college, I thought about medicine at the very beginning. And then I started taking some of the required pre-medical courses. And then I thought, I don't know if this is for me, if this is what medicine's going to look like. And so I did a bunch of exploring in a lot of other departments. And I ended up at one point trying to make my own major. And that didn't go so well. And I ended up uh, graduating with a degree in psychology. And it was towards the end of my towards the end of college that I was thinking again about medical school, all the classes that I had been taking in all the other different departments, like nothing was quite giving me the same rush, I would say, Mm -hmm. as, as the science courses. And so I started doing some exploring, uh, into medicine as a future career. And I had, uh, about a year and a half gap year between undergrad and medical school, Mm -hmm. as I was doing a bunch of different part-time jobs and preparing my application. Mm-hmm. What has your experience been like in medical school so far or overall? It's definitely been challenging in ways that I didn't expect. I think there's this idea that we push in medical school about being resilient and being efficient. And I think sometimes it's good to lean into that and other times it's good to pull away And I think one of the biggest lessons that I've taken away from medical school is learning how to set boundaries for myself, both personally and professionally, in order to have a sustainable career in this field. Yeah. Tell me what some of the the challenges have been in medical school. So we started the the same year, so we're both in our fourth year. I I think the pace is a common one for everyone. The first year of medical school, especially at the University of Michigan, is condensed with all your preclinical work, and then you do your clinical year in your second year, and a lot of programs do it in your third. So you're trying to pack in almost two years of preclinical work into one. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the information that you also need to know 
is not taught in that first year because you've had to shorten the amount that you can feasibly feasibly learn in that time. And so there was almost a lot of catching up I felt was being done on the outside of my uh, work in the hospital or preparing for exams. There was additional studying to catch up on material that maybe wasn't included in those parts of parts of our training. And I think another part of the training is that there's a lot of different ways to get where you want to be, but there's often pressure to go about it one way. And I think a lot of students are doing this now, and I think it's a very privileged position to be in, which I'm grateful for that I did do, was taking uh, a leave of absence. And there's different types of leaves of absence that you can take. It can be educational, research, it can be a detached study or personal. And I ended up doing a combination of educational research and a detached study. And so I did an epidemiology program at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And then I switched into a detached study to focus on research that was meaningful for me, which was looking at how patients die of brain tumors. And this was a good space for me to take a step back from the pace of medical school and actually reflect on my own values and how I wanted to make sure that they were centered in the specialty that I would end up choosing and the future that I would have within medicine. Yeah, I also, you know, took a year off as well. And I think it's it's super meaningful to have that time to explore something that's, you know, you're interested in either outside of medicine um, or like adjacent to medicine for some of those passions, but then also like recenter yourself and have more time to think and reflect about your future career and um, things you want to incorporate in it and how you want to be as a future physician. So I totally agree with that. I think it's super valuable and worthwhile in medical school. Cause like you said, the, the four years are so condensed and packed full of just medical school stuff. So definitely mm-hmm. is, is nice to have that. And um, I sounds like you're interested slash applying into family medicine as mm-hmm. a specialty. Um, how did you become interested and decide on that specialty? It's a good question because it was not something that was even on my radar when I came into medical school. I had done this fellowship opportunity as an undergraduate student with the Department of Neurosurgery at Michigan Medicine, and I was really interested in that field for the first couple of years. I was doing all the things that I needed to do to be a successful applicant for the match, and it was actually during my research year when I was slowing down and taking a look around me uh, that I didn't quite like the path I was on. I was having a lot of questions, a lot of doubts about what I was choosing to do. And so I started to think back about my clinical rotations from the year before and where did I feel like a whole person and where did I also feel like I could still take care of people in the best way possible with my specific skills and talents. And the only specialty that came to mind for me was family medicine. So I had a lot of conversations during the research year, quite frankly, only between neurosurgeons and family medicine doctors, Mm -hmm. because I was deciding between those two. And at the end of the day, I can't quite pinpoint an exact moment when it flipped for me. But the values that I was attracted to in neurosurgery were like the cornerstones of family medicine. And so when I matriculated back into medical school, I focused all my remaining rotations on applying into family med. Yeah. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's so exciting. Um, those are very, very different fields, but I think, I think it's so interesting you say of like, you know, your values and the core aspects of what you're interested in medicine and want to do with your career. One can be found in different fields, but also like can be found in something that um, you might not have originally expected that you would, mm-hmm. you know, want to go into. I think I felt similarly about peds because I wanted to do ob for a long time. Okay. And kind of like looked at like all the the things I was interested about ob and like the values, the core things I wanted in my career were really um, more centered on peds. So I think it's, it's super, super fascinating for sure. Tell me a little bit about your experiences during your gap year, like doing your research and um, also like pursuing, you said a degree in epidemiology and public health. I did a short summer program that they had. And okay. so it's essentially a certificate in doing some of the epidemiology courses that they had. My, I think the most helpful course that I took during that time was actually successful scientific writing, which I would have to recommend to every student. And that was helpful because during this time, I was also co-editor in chief of the Michigan Journal of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And so I would... Th- I would hope that this course would become a prerequisite for anybody in leadership positions within that journal, because I think it's so critical to how we communicate to the public and to our peers as we uh, evolve in our careers. And as a side note, I just want to say, I think you'll be excellent in pediatrics. Um, You're excellent in whatever specialty you chose, but I think that'll be a great fit for you. Thank you. Yeah. Same for family medicine. I I could see you as such a great, a strong family (laughs) medicine doctor. But tell me about your role as editor-in-chief at MJM. Like what's, how did you get involved in that role and what sorts of things have you done with the organization? So I was interested in the journal at the very beginning of medical school. I had actually applied my first year, I believe, for an editor position. There's different levels, um, starting at reviewer to editor, lead editor, and then the editors-in-chief. And I was rejected from the editor role. So I went with a reviewer role for the first year, and then I tried again. The following year was rejected again for the editor role. But then on the third try, I was actually able to make the leap from reviewer to lead editor. And then after serving as the lead editor for fundraising, I transitioned into the role of co-editor-in-chief. And in that position for the journal, we were able to, I feel, revitalize it. We were delayed on... Uh, publishing one of our issues for two years. And a lot of that had to do with the COVID-19 pandemic and the financial costs of producing an issue. For only six articles, it would cost about $5,000 to produce um, in collaboration with Michigan Publishing Services. So there was a lot that we needed to do to prepare in order to create sustainable funding for Mm -hmm. the journal. And in my time in the position as co-editor-in-chief, we were successful in obtaining different grants. And so now we have funding for several years into the future, which I'm very happy about. Yeah, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. And then I know you've mentioned kind of pivoting a little bit, mm-hmm. um, some interests in ethics and um, like really exploring that that topic and that field throughout medical school. So tell me about how you really became interested in the field of ethics to begin with. Honestly, I didn't have any exposure in college. I knew ethics existed. It would just come up in side conversations with other students at the time. 
but I had no formal training in it. And so when I came to medical school, we had this option to pursue one of the paths of excellence. There are about eight optional educational tracks that students can do. They're essentially like areas of concentration. Mm-hmm. I equate them to minors that someone would do in college mm-hmm. right, that you're doing through your medical school training. And one of the options was to pursue ethics. And out of all the ones that were available to us, that was the one I found most interesting. Mm-hmm. So I applied to participate in that pathway. I was accepted. And then I did everything that was available to me. I did our online course, our in-person ethics consultations, clinical rotation that we could do. I attended ethics committee meetings every single month for both adults and pediatrics. And I was even able to lead one of the journal clubs for the ethics committee, and then also facilitate a discussion for first-year medical students on vaccine hesitancy. And uh, now a formal student mentor for more junior students in the pathway. So I tried to find every avenue that I could take. And um, right now I am working with the clinical ethicist to try to get the hours needed to sit for the healthcare ethics consultation exam, because I would like to be a certified clinical ethicist before Mm -hmm. starting residency. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. It's so exciting. It sounds like you've done a lot of different things within the path of excellence and like just a lot of things in general within within um, the field of ethics. And how do you foresee ethics playing a role in your future career as a family medicine doctor? Mm, that's a great question. I definitely wanted to be a centerpiece. Mm-hmm. I think that ethics is the foundation of proper medical care. And I think being able to kind of delve into these harder topics and explore them with your patient in the process is very important. I hope to continue to do clinical ethics consultations in residency. I know that might be hard with this schedule, but post-residency, I'd like to be serving on an ethics committee, um, working with the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, the national ethics organization in North America, and teaching medical students about ethics. I'm very much interested in uh, ed- medical education as well. And I think that's reflected in the different activities that I have done. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's so cool. I think it's such an interesting field. And so, like you said, so vital to to medicine. And I think everyone should have some, some basic level of training in ethics and the field of medicine if you're going to become a physician. What sorts of things have you learned or like, you know, what sorts of things have you gleaned from these experiences in um, ethics rotations or ethics experiences? Hmm. Well, a lot of the research that I have done within ethics has come out of conversations that happen at ethics committee meetings, Mm -hmm. picking up different idea threads that are happening in conversation with other people, and then expanding on them for my research. Mm -hmm. So both of the presentations that I have done for the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities have come specifically from attending ethics committee meetings and hearing things that I think we can explore deeper. So my most current research project is looking at the differences in ethics consults for the population between 18 to 26 years old, whether they're consulted by the adult ethics committee or the pediatric ethics committee. And that liminal space has pediatric patients transition to adult patient care is a very interesting place to be. And we've started to notice that there are different types of ethical issues and contextual issues that happen for that population when Mm -hmm. ethics is involved. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. 
I'm really interested in that population as well because I like I like working with adolescents, but the that transition to adulthood population is so interesting to me. Like the there's a lot of like gaps in care. I feel like sometimes as that transition happens, especially for like chronically ill patients, that transition can be very difficult as you kind of move from you've seen pediatricians your whole life and you have a really great care team and now you're moving into the adult world and it's so so interesting to think about that transitional time and I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of ethical quandaries and like questions that come up during that time as well and then I know you've also been involved with the Student Diversity Council here at the University of Michigan Um, how did you decide to get involved with that organization and um, what sorts of things have you been involved with with that organization? Well, in college, I served as a diversity peer educator, and I really enjoyed that experience. It was a very unique place for me to be with my different identities that I've had, and I learned a lot in the process. And I knew that I wanted to continue learning about social justice and my advocacy work uh, while I was a medical school student. And the Student Diversity Council was going through a lot of different changes in our first like two years of medical school. And entering into my third year of medical school, it started to really evolve in the leadership structure. And there was an opportunity to apply for this new, essentially, edition of the Student Diversity Council. And so I put my name in the hat for the representative for community engagement and was successful in getting that position. And one of the projects I'm particularly proud of in that role is I'm a big fan of newsletters. So I worked on developing a newsletter to be transparent with our constituency, so to speak, about what we were doing and why we were doing it and making sure that we were really taking in the input of all the different student groups at the medical school when we were coming up with projects or um, ways to support the community. After about a year in this position, there was an opportunity to apply for the chair position and I applied, was successful again in that regard, and served as a chair uh, for about a year before transitioning leadership. And we continued a lot of different projects we had been working on before. And some of the things that I think of as highlights were, you know, the health uh, health curriculum that we did with the core clerkships across all these different rotations and making sure that there was health disparities lecture for each of them. And developing these awards related to diversity, equity, and inclusion for faculty, staff, residents, and other medical students. And then also continuing our medical student mini wellness grant, which little small financial awards to help students with different wellness activities and funding that was not um, typically available to them in other avenues. And we we wanted to make sure that other students were supported, especially during the pandemic. Oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. It sounds like you've been like involved in so many different things and um, have had so many amazing experiences throughout your time in, in medical school. And I know you also mentioned, you know, experiencing some rejection as well and, and things you've applied for, but also, a, you know, overall, like a strong trajectory of perseverance. But I, I wonder if you could, you know, mention what it's like to kind of experience this this feeling of failure in in the setting of medicine or in medical school, and then how how to persevere through it. I think it's hard, right? We're I feel like my classmates within medical school were all trying to be very successful, make ourselves look very good for applying into residency, and you know it it always feels a little bit like a competition. 
And we're always trying to be the best we can be. And sometimes that results in us, I think, comparing ourselves to each other in the process, even though we're taking very different paths. And I think that is one of the, probably the biggest challenges of being in medical school is Mm -hmm. just the environment that we're in. I think a lot of people equate it to a pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was learning to step back and see that the process of medicine and being within this within this field is a marathon, not a sprint. I feel like that's overused, but so applicable yeah. to my experience in medicine that is just going to keep going. There's really not a defined endpoint, not as clearly, I think, as in other types of careers. And as a result of that, of us trying to be successful, we're trying to do all these different things. And when we experience rejection, it almost feels more of a reflection of our character and identity rather just than an experience that we're having. And so Mm -hmm. learning to separate the two was really pivotal for me in moving forward successfully because I heard this idea from this PhD student and surely now she has her doctorate. Um, She was from the UK and she developed a CV of failure in addition to her CV of success. And so I also have this CV of failure and I look at the different things that I've been rejected from and how I got to actually where I feel the best in the, in the process of experiencing quote unquote failure And a lot of the different things that I was rejected from related to my strong academic interests in in Mm -hmm. different areas. And so it was really for me separating my identity from academics in order to keep moving forward when I experienced that failure. Yeah, I think that's so important. I love that idea of like a CV of failure. That's that's really cool. Because I I was just thinking about that. I'm like, you know, we all we're trying to put our best foot forward in medicine because we're especially in medical school, you're going off likely to apply to residency and you give your CV and it's a CV of all your successes. But, you know, one really asks about your experiences of failures and it's it's, you know, it's trying to put our best foot forward, but ignoring all these other aspects that, you know, make us who we are, even though, like you said, failure is not an identity and our identity is not tied up into our, mm-hmm. our academic successes or our, our academic trajectory. But I think, I think that's an important distinction to make because in medicine, you know, we're becoming physicians, mm-hmm. we're becoming doctors. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, a lot of the times our identity gets really tied up into that and it's hard mm-hmm. to kind of separate out but I think it's it's super important for just well-being and and remaining a, a well-rounded individual for sure. What role do you think like perseverance plays in the field of medicine? Do you think that we, you know, give enough attention to our uh, yeah quote unquote like failures in medicine and and or do you think there's you know maybe this is a leading question but too much too much to too much attention to towards perfectionism and trying to be our best in medicine. I think there's a lot there. Yes, to I think trying to be perfect within medicine. We are human and we make mistakes, but I think the environment which we're in and how it's starting to transition in the world is making that pressure to be perfect even stronger mm-hmm. um, because of the consequences that we can experience. And I think there's this idea from people outside of medicine that we are infallible in some way. And that is just simply not the case. Mm-hmm. I think there's caution around 
needing to be perseverant um, in the face of failure. I think if we lean too far into that, it it results in the expense of our wellness and our well-being. And that can is broadly speaking, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever is most pertinent for the for the person in question. And that balance is so elusive of being resilient, but also make sure, making sure you're being well and kind mm-hmm. towards yourself. And I think the research here for me was that opportunity to take a step back and actually figure out what that balance would look like for my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm still not quite where I want to be. I think sometimes I still lean into perseverance and the ambitions of my future in medicine more than I would like to, but it's time and practice and patience with myself. And I'm not quite sure that I would be where I am right now. If I had gone straight through medical school, I think that time to step back is something I would repeat again and in a heartbeat. And I had done that too, with the gap years in between college and medical school and really actually absorbing the fact that I'm on my own timeline Mm -hmm. has been helpful and I can be perseverant, but I can also give myself grace. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense because almost like striving for, you know, complete perseverance, like you overcome Mm -hmm. everything is also another way we strive for perfection. So giving yourself grace to, you know, to experience, you know, a a struggle or to experience, you know, not getting something rejection or not getting what you wanted or not achieving something and letting yourself like sit through that and not saying, well, now I have to persevere and overcome is also, it's, it's good for your well-being as well and for your mental health. Cause I think perseverance can have, like you said, that double-edged sword of, you know, we're still just striving for perfection. And then tell me more about what you did during your research here. I know you mentioned research on um, how people die from brain tumors. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that. I was really curious at this time, I had still had a strong interest in neurosurgery. And so I was particularly interested in the patient population within neuro-oncology. And so that's where the idea kind of came from. And as I was doing this research throughout the year, I realized that I wanted to know more about the ethics of the conversations that were happening between patients, their caregivers, their families towards the end of life, specifically for this, for this population. And what I ended up wanting to do with the research was develop language that providers and physicians could use with patients and their families about the end of life from this type of illness, because we have a general understanding, I think with like, if the kidneys go, the bodies go or the cardiovascular health with the term heart failure, but we really don't have anything to help patients understand how they're, how they will die from a brain tumor. And so the terminology that we've been kind of playing around with is brain failure, very similar to heart failure and working on how we would define that. And so I will actually presenting that, be presenting that research at the Society of Neuro-Oncology in November in Tampa, Florida this year. Wow. That's so cool. That's really interesting research. And I think you're so right that we don't have a lot of language to talk about that with patients or even I think to conceptualize that sometimes is really hard in medicine. Yeah, I can't even 
think of like the language I would think of using in, in that instance. But I also think about brain death um, and not just specifically from a tumor, but, you know, when someone experiences clinical like brain death, how it's hard to translate that that information to a family as well. Um, and how sometimes that, that can be really confusing where someone's heart and lungs can be working because we're keeping them, you know, on a ventilator and kind of keeping them alive in that sense, but their brain is dead. And and that is so hard for some people sometimes to, to understand and to wrap our heads around even as physicians. And so I think that's such a, a valuable, a valuable uh, research um, topic and something that will definitely add a lot of benefit to the, the field of medicine for sure. That's so cool. I hope so. I think I still struggle with coming up with the term brain failure because in some ways when I say it out loud, I imagine that people might take it personally, like mm-hmm. it's a failure of, of themselves yeah. um, and it's a failure of themselves and that that's why they're dying. And I don't want that to be the case. And I don't know if that's what people would interpret from the terminology. So there's still a lot of work to do to find the language to use around it. And I think that's, that's where palliative care comes in and ethics and learning to have these conversations and how different patients will respond differently to terms and words that you use. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to be mindful of that in in the research that I'm doing, but it's hard to, because you're trying to develop something that can be used broadly and generally, and there's so much more nuance that happens. And I think that's, that's why I'm attracted also to family medicine, because you get to have more of those intimate conversations and in a setting too, where it's desired and and wanted. Yeah. You're so right. Like our brain is so like it's culturally and linguistically like the the seat of who we are as human beings. And so it's really tied up in a lot of our, our selfhood and our identity. And so the language we use around it is super important when it, when it comes to brain death or brain failure, as you, as you term it as well. It's like, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm excited to see where that research goes for sure. And also super excited to see where your career goes. I know you'll make a really great family physician and it sounds like you've done so many amazing and cool things throughout medical school. So I'm excited to see how things go, but um, anything else you want to mention as we finish up this, this interview? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for such, uh, such kind words. And I really appreciate the opportunity to speak on your podcast. I think it's such a cool concept to do and so, so unique as well. And I think it adds that human dimension, which I, I think this is an interesting point too. We talk about being more human and, I don't quite know when that shifted for me or you for talking about ourselves that way um, and the things that we do throughout medicine, because I never had that language before medical school. And so I don't know where this disconnect was between me saying that we need to have more humanism in medicine or to I need to be more human in practicing medicine when I am, in fact, human. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know where in medical school that shift happens but I think if we can get to a point where we don't speak that way anymore about the things that we're doing, mm-hmm. I, I think then medicine will be in a good place. So we have a lot of work to do and I am happy that we are both on the job to yeah. do. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Distant Moon, Stories of Healthcare Education. 
You can find us on oxacardia.com, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.